This is the Trails Church Podcast. At the Trails Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples through the gospel in community and on mission. If you'd like more information about our church, visit our website, thetrails.org. Now here's today's podcast. Open your Bible with me to Exodus chapter 24. The first time we officially gathered as the Trails Church was on September the 9th, 2018, in this very room. Our core group had been planning and praying, meeting and waiting for about nine months, and the day had finally arrived for us to covenant together as a brand new church. Uh, The service began with a call to worship, the same one that John Calvin initiated in Geneva in the 16th century. Every service there began with Psalm 124, verse 8. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. And by acknowledging our need for God's help, we were off to the races. Next, we sang hymns of the holiness of God and the blood of Christ that was shed for us. We read from Scripture and heard God's Word preached from Psalm chapter 1. Then we recited our church covenant and shared in the Lord's Supper, both for the very first time as a new people, a new local church. Our final element of the service was the benediction from 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And through that liturgy, through the words and acts of worship, we became a new church. Praise the Lord. Exodus is a story of God redeeming his people from captivity so that they might worship him alone. While Israel was still in chains, God met with Moses at the burning bush of Mount Sinai and promised, I will be with you, and this will be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve, avad is the Hebrew word there, uh, or worship God on this mountain. That's Exodus 3.12. Well, now... This sacred assembly has gathered, in fact, to worship the God who redeemed them from slavery, saved them through the baptism at the Red Sea, led them through the wilderness, and brought them to Mount Sinai, where they will, in fact, worship the Lord. They'd been planning and praying, wondering and waiting for over 400 years And the day had finally arrived for them to ratify, to make official the covenant that God had already made with them, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. Yet through this liturgy, through the words and acts of worship, Israel will officially become a people, if you will. The scene portrayed in Exodus 24, 1 to 11 contains an order of worship for the first corporate worship service of the Israelites. Here we witness the sealing of the covenant between the Lord and his people 
as they are called to worship, as they read the word of God, they're symbolically cleansed by blood, and then they feast in God's presence. No wonder these verses have been described as some of the most astonishing verses in the Old Testament. This liturgy of Sinai also has much to teach us about the worship of God and even living lives of worship as his people today. Let me highlight what we learn under four headings. First, worship begins with God. Second, worship reflects the word. Third, worship requires sacrifice. And fourth, worship demands response. So there's our heading. Would you stand with me to your feet as we read aloud God's holy and inerrant word, though written long ago, speaks to us today. Then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken We will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings, sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw it against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God, and ate, and drank. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. The first truth we learn from our passage is worship begins with God, verses 1 and 2. Before we look at any of the aspects of this liturgy, we must realize all of it begins with God's invitation. God always has the first word. Worship does not begin with mankind attempting to reach God Worship begins with God inviting his people to approach him and to know him in the ways that he has ordained. The first instructions we notice are some practical details pertaining to the division of the people. There's a threefold division. 
So like seats that you might purchase to go to the Super Bowl. People are not allowed just to arrange and sit anywhere they wish. There are assigned seats. The overwhelming majority of the people are not near, we see. They're not near God, but they're positioned at the foot of the mountain. This is like in the 400 section seats, really far. It's like reverse nosebleeds. They're way down low instead of way up high. Okay? Um, now, you'll remember um, a couple weeks ago, they don't want to be close anyway. They're really happy with the seats. Now, they're involved. They're just far away. Then halfway up the mountain, Moses' brother Aaron is mentioned, along with Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, whose lives are short, by the way, because they worship in the wrong way, you find in the book of Leviticus. So, uh, Aaron, his two sons, and then 70 of the elders of Israel are halfway up the mountain. Now, these are um, they're like sideline seats. They're very close, maybe the owner's box. And there, there's this list of 73 special guests that stand out. Aaron and his sons, who will soon be recognized as the priests of Israel, are set apart from the rest of the congregation to serve the Lord in a specific way. And then there's the mention of these 70 elders. We're not told more about their identity here, but these are probably the judges assigned in Exodus 18 when Moses found ruling and judging the people was more than he could manage. So these 73 men are halfway up the mountain. And then, verse 2 explains, Moses alone is invited to come up to the Lord. He's not given a seat. He's not to stay at a safe distance. He's on the field. He's in the very presence of God while all the eyes of Israel are fixed on the summit of Sinai where fire and lightning and smoke were existing. And God was the center of their attention. Moses was right there. We'll spend more time on this soon, Lord willing, but I believe what you have here is a preview of of the tabernacle with this threefold division. With the giving of the tabernacle, where God would dwell in the midst of his people, uh, we find a threefold division. The court was where all of God's people could gather, the inner court was where only the priests were permitted, and then the Holy of Holies was where only the high priest was allowed to enter as the mediator between God and his people. And so, uh, as all the people of Israel find their way to their assigned seats, we see this threefold division. Hundreds of thousands of people, mind you, are at the bottom of this mountain. Many would say as many as a million people. Uh, Seventy-three men are halfway up, and one man, Moses, the mediator, goes all the way into the presence of the living God. And before we move on, I want to just marvel for a minute that this whole worship service begins with God. With God extending to his people a divine invitation. God welcomed Moses. Come up to the Lord. The holy God whose glory is ablaze with fire. The one whose voice, the Psalms say, is like thunder over the waters the one who has all power to toss the armies of Egypt into the sea, 
invites his people through the mediation of Moses, come up, come up to the Lord. Now, with each of these points, I want to look at how they actually inform our liturgy, our corporate worship today, and then also spend a moment talking about how these apply to us personally as worshipers of God through Christ. The reason our service begins with a call to worship is because we realize, well, I've said it already, God always has the first word. Corporate worship is not our idea. It's not a man-made invention. It's something that we've been welcomed into because of Christ. This is why if I run into you in the hallway and you're running late, which means I'm late as well, I'll tell you, hey, you better hurry in because if you miss the call to worship, you miss a lot. Now, the announcements, that's fine. But when we start the service and God's word is proclaimed, there's something remarkably significant happening there. God is welcoming us, speaking to us. Come, come, gather my people. Uh, This just struck me this week looking at this text. We're looking at one man and then a group of 73 and then everybody down low worshiping not close but from afar. But the reality of the new covenant that we live in with Christ, that invitation is not just for one of us. It's not just for 73 of us. It's for all the people of God to gather, to draw near, to draw near. And I've been thinking about what a remarkable privilege it is to draw near to the Lord. Uh, At the beginning of this year, James chapter 4, verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That's just been a banner over my thoughts. I want to draw near to the Lord like never before. And I pray, but it is his great grace, he would draw near to me. We'll look a little bit about this next week. I just My simple question is, do you worship from afar when you've been invited to draw near? Child of God, are you afraid to draw near to your heavenly Father through Christ? Let's draw near to him with full assurance of faith, Hebrews says because of what Christ has done for us. But mind you here, worship begins with God. The second truth we find is that worship reflects the word. We see this in verses three and four, and also verse seven. After Israel heard the very voice of God ringing in their ears as he spoke the 10 words, the 10 commandments, the people begged Moses, don't let God speak to us. Instead, they asked if God might speak To Moses, who would then tell the people all that God had to say. Well, here, verses 3 and 4, record the first time we see that rhythm of God speaking to Moses and Moses then speaking to the people. Only this time, notice they are not afraid, but instead they say, all that God has said, we will do. Then Moses does something remarkable. He wrote down all the words, is what he says here. He wrote down all the words, and then he read them aloud to the congregation. Here we witness the first public reading of Scripture in corporate worship. And let me just pause right here to remind you, the very words that Moses wrote down are the very words we hold in our hand today. 
The story of Exodus that Moses inscribed under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit are the very words that we hold today. Not in Hebrew, thankfully they are in English so we can read them. But Moses wrote it down. Why? Because God wanted his word to be preserved for his people. And then as you look further, verse 7, you'll hear a near echo of verses 3 and 4. Moses took the book of the covenant, which is, as we know, Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 22, all the way to Exodus chapter 23 and verse 33, and he read it out loud. It's important to recognize how the people respond to the word, how they treat the word. They're not intimidated by God's instructions nor are they conflicted by God's commands. They don't feel manipulated by God's precepts. They welcomed God's words. The God that had redeemed them and saved them now has spoken to them, telling them how to live as his people. And notice they say once more, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. Notice in this ancient public worship service, the importance of Scripture, of the reading of the Word of God. Christians are a Word-made people. Scripture holds a central place in the life of our church and in each of its ministries and specifically in our liturgy. Our worship service, as we looked at already, begins with the public reading of Scripture. Our songs and prayers are shaped by, informed by, Scripture. During the sermon, we stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. We practice expositional preaching, where the preacher doesn't just to get stand up here week by week and just chase rabbits or uh, headlines or his own hobby horses. No, we just preach through books of the Bible, and Lord willing, we'll make it all the way through the books of the Bible, and then the preacher will retire. <laughs> or start in Philippians once again. And then finally, it's the word that sends us into the world each week, where we receive this benediction, this blessing, as God sends us by his word. Let me summarize with this statement. Christian worship is built upon, shaped by, and saturated with the word of God. We don't want that to only be true of our worship service, but also our homes, also our lives. We want a rich culture of the gospel here, one marked by the grace of Jesus and patience, and long-suffering. We also want to call one another to walk in the way of Jesus, in obedience to the teaching of Scripture. It is not one or the other. It is both and. We want to know the Word, but not just know it, but to practice it, which is why the Apostle James said, as Michael said earlier, be doers of the Word and not hearers only. Now, we know that Israel will not do what they've just said. They will not always walk in heartfelt obedience, and neither will we. 
yet we must maintain a heart position to keep God's word open in front of us. And every word that God speaks, our, our heart's response must be all that the Lord says we will do. Where that disagrees with our culture, God speaks. Where we hear something different every day of our lives, we, let, we tune our ear to the voice of God. Worship reflects the word. And so let us pray and continue to echo this ancient prayer. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. The third truth we discover is that worship requires sacrifice. This really hones in on verse, uh, the latter part of verse 4 through 6, and then again in verse 8. From the beginning, we must note that mankind cannot approach the holiness of God by their own holiness, nor by obedience. The only way to approach the living God was through sacrifice for sin. We've made our way through the book of the covenant over the last few weeks, and now we come to the blood of the covenant. These verses are the centerpiece of this liturgy. We were given instructions on how Moses was to build an altar in chapter 20. Well, now here in 24, Moses builds that altar. There were two sacrifices mentioned in Exodus 20, a burnt offering and a peace offering or a fellowship offering. The burnt offering, if you'll remember, was to be incinerated. I said incarcerated in the first verse. It's a different thing. Incinerated. The whole thing is just roasted until it is no more, and the aroma of that is a fragrant offering to the Lord. You could say it was incarcerated in the fire. It was like the fire arrested it, you know. Okay, so there's this whole burnt offering, and then the peace offering. The peace offering, the fat is burned, and then the animal is cooked. And then that, that meal, that meat is to be shared among family and friends celebrating peace with God. And here we find both of these offerings used in this worship service. Some young men, strong men, who have strength to wrestle oxen to the ground and bring them to be slaughtered are, are summoned to go and help with this. And then Moses leads the people in worship by taking half of the blood and pouring it on the altar. And the other half, he symbolically pours on the people. Now, I think probably not the hundreds of thousands of people one by one, but likely the 73 elders that are there gathered with Aaron and his boys, sprinkled on them representing all of the people. And he says, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. The fact that blood was required is no small matter. Blood represents life. There are some theological realities that I want to make sure that we continually talk about as a church. None of these are new things. They're familiar things, but I don't want to become too familiar to us. I'm going to give you three words as we think about blood and the significance. The first is substitution. This lesson was taught in the 10th plague, that redemption would come through the shedding of blood. In Egypt, it was the blood of the firstborn son that was demanded or the blood of a spotless lamb. And then that blood marked on the doorframe of the house. Their lives were, for the Israelite homes, 
covered by the blood and spared. Here we see in the worship of God, it's the blood of a spotless animal. We'll find in Leviticus whether that's an ox or a goat or a dove. This animal is to be put to death in place of the worshiper. God requires a sacrifice be made for unholy people to approach a holy God. And now, the only way we can do that is through the idea of substitution. Instead of us offering our own blood, it's the blood of this animal, historically, that was given instead. Substitution. The blood was also a propitiation. Propitiation. Look at verse 11. It presents a shocking reality about this group of people still alive. This group of unholy people somehow still alive in the presence of a holy God. Notice it says, God did not lay his hand on them. That's Bible talk for God didn't kill them. How incredible. Instead, there is peace with God. Because the righteous anger of God towards sin was poured out in the sacrifice that was made. And so God's anger towards sinner and sin has been totally absorbed by the sacrifice so that sinful people can be in his presence. And so for you, Christ, if you're in Christ, the wrath of God toward your sin has been completely poured out into Jesus. So that all that remains for you is a call to worship, the love of God made known because of the idea, the doctrinal truth of propitiation. And then finally, this blood was a consecration. The sprinkling of the blood was symbolic of how God saw Israel in the making of this covenant. The blood of the sacrifice sprinkled on them, symbolically making them a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Making them something that on their own they could never be. So because of the blood of the covenant, the people of God have a substitute for their sin, a propitiation for their sin, the wrath of God is satisfied, and now they stand a consecrated, holy people. This is gospel news for Israel. This is why Exodus is called the gospel of the Old Testament. I'm I'm certain you already see in this ancient worship service another service that would come that would not involve the flesh and blood of an animal, but one that remembers the body of Christ broken for us, the blood of Christ spilled for us. The liturgy of Sinai foreshadows a greater sacrifice that would come when the Son of God laid down his life to become the once and for all sacrifice for our sins. Christ died a death of substitution. The perfect, spotless lamb dying in the place of ruined sinners. That's you and me. Christ died a death of propitiation. The wrath of God being poured out on Christ so that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. And he died a death to consecrate us, so that like Israel, we might now be called a chosen race, 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That's 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, where Peter takes what God calls them in Exodus chapter 19 and just lays it on the church. I love this stuff. You love this stuff? One of the things we do each week as a part of corporate worship uh, is admit that we are sinners in need of a Savior. We come clean before God and with ourselves that we have broken God's law and commands. Or as Jesus taught us to uh, confess our sins. Uh, And then we hear the good news of the gospel proclaimed. And we're reminded that if you're in Christ, there is full pardon and forgiveness of sin. Atonement full applied to me. The blood spilled at Calvary has swallowed all my guilt and shame. Now reconciled in Jesus' name. That's what we remind each other of. And then once a month, we share the cup and the bread where we are really reminded as we proclaim to one another, and even if you're not a Christian, we're proclaiming to you that salvation comes only through the blood of the Lamb of God that was spilled. And there we remember. We can't lose this practice of remembrance. Why? Because we are prone to forget, quick to move on to other things, and so God's given us these rhythms in corporate worship and in personal worship to remember who he is and to remember all the blessings and benefits that flow to us through the completed work of Christ. The final truth we'll highlight for now is worship demands response, verses nine through 11. Before we look at these concluding verses, I wanna call to your attention, there's a rhythm of revelation and response throughout this passage. We see it from the very beginning. God calls, the people gather. God speaks, the people voice their obedience. God requires sacrifice, and one is made. And here, in this final climactic act of response, in this liturgy of Sinai, the people behold the glory of God, and they feast in his presence. You couldn't write a better end to this scene. The first thing we notice is they behold God. Verse 10 says, With all certainty, they saw the God of Israel. Now, the word in Hebrew in verse 12 that says they beheld is not the normal Hebrew word, which means to see, like you would see a sunrise. It's a stronger, more intense term commonly used of prophetic visions, like when Isaiah In chapter 6, I see the Lord. He's high and lifted up. That kind of seeing. And it's used here to underscore the uniqueness of this historic, redemptive event. Now, 10 chapters from now, in Exodus 33, Moses will ask to see the glory of God. And God says, Moses... Sweet Moses, no one can see my face and live. I can't wait till we get there. I'll tell you the rest of the story. But 
We just hang on to that thought. No one can see God's glory, see his face, and live. But, so how are these people still alive? What is it they saw? Uh, it is so careful, this writing. Notice, do you see the description of God here? What does his face look like? No, you have no idea. What about his body? No, no, you can't go there either. What about, his, what about his feet? What about just the bottom of his foot? Nope, no description there either. You gotta go lower. The only thing described in this vision of God is the ground underneath his foot. And he says it's, it's like sapphire stone. It's, it's blue, representing the heavens. It's almost like heaven is his throne and earth is his, what? Footstool. They behold God. Second, notice they feast in the presence of God. And isn't this the thing that God's been after all along? To have his people feasting in his presence as they eat the covenant meal in the presence of the covenant God. They confirm, God confirms that they are now at peace with him. What a meal. What a meal they, they drink. We're not told what they drink. Is it wine like in the feast of the Passover? Uh, they eat, but we don't know what. Is the fellowship offering that was just cooked down below? This becomes the custom practice when we celebrate the peace between God and man. There's a meal. So what do we note in this actions of the scene, well, the people behold God, they experience communion with him as they feast in his presence. They behold God and experience communion with him as they feast in his presence. I think that's a wonderful description for corporate worship. To behold God and experience communion with him as we feast in his presence. That week after week, we gather to renew the covenant that God has made with us in Christ. To behold God, to experience communion with him, and to feast in his presence. There's no ordinary Sunday when God's people gather in his presence. And so in the elements of this liturgy at Sinai, we witness the sealing of the covenant between God and his people. Israel's called to worship They read the word. They are symbolically cleansed. They behold his glory. Feast in his presence. Lord willing, we too will meet week by week until the Lord returns as the redeemed people of God to remember that worship begins with God. Worship reflects the word. Worship requires sacrifice. And that worship demands response. And in this rhythm of revelation and response, which we enjoy, we also recognize there's an ongoing response where our entire lives are lived in response to who he is and for all that he's done for us in Christ. Let's pray for his help. Oh God, thank you for your word. Thank you for how it teaches and instructs us how it shapes our thinking, how it it forms our lives. 
I pray you'd give us the grace to be a people who draw near by faith, who walk in obedience to every word that you've spoken, who look and trust toward the sacrifice of Christ once for all made on our behalf. And Holy Spirit, empower us to live lives of response as worshipers of Jesus. I ask all this in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from The Trails Church. We hope you have been encouraged, equipped, and edified by time spent together in God's Word. And again, if you'd like to find out more about The Trails Church, visit our website, thetrails.org. 